complete Elaine May. I realized uh, I, I totally didn't introduce either one of us on the second episode. So I'm Matt Gasteyer, and you are Travis Trudell. Hello, Travis. How hey, Matt. How's it going? <laughs> it's going pretty good. Nice. Um, I also realized, like, there's probably going to be people who listen to this who, like, with the first season were like, ah, oh, Stanley Kubrick, but oh, Elaine May. So, you know. You'll, they'll never know who we are. We're just a couple of guys talking about Elaine May. You know what? I think that's how, uh, you know, I think that's okay. But, I agree. uh, <laughs> that, uh, the, uh, I just saw Elaine May's, um, bio in the playbill for the play. The, her play just started as we were recording this, by the way. Um, it, I think it premiered a week or two ago. Um, as of when we're recording, um, it'll probably be nearing the end of her run. Uh, when we're finished uh, putting these up, but um, it said uh, it, it had like a list of like the Mike Nichols collaboration, and then her, she, her a lot of her film and directing and writing credits, and then at the end some play credits, and then at the end it said uh, something along the lines of uh, she's done more, but that is enough. <laughs> you know, she, she has a very good time uh, with uh, her own. Uh... You know, her own mystery, her own uh, write-ups, you know. She's been having a great time with that. Um, So today we are going to talk about uh, a pretty different movie than the first two movies that we talked about. Um, But it has an equally checkered past to A New Leaf, um, and if not not to an an even larger larger degree, I think as we go along in, in these movies, there's sort of the, the, the backstory, um, or in the case of Heartbreak Kid, the, uh, the front story, the story after the movie was released, um, grows in terms of how just much there is preventing people from seeing these movies as they were intended to be seen. (laughs) And, And like, and, and just like, their their reputations start to precede the films themselves uh and this movie is definitely um uh you know borders uh ishtar in terms of just how much mythology there is behind it um and and the the process to actually getting it to the screen uh in the way that elaine may intended uh was actually a, a decade plus process of um of making the movie. Um, yeah, it didn't get uh, fully released under her, like, her vision of it until, like, 1986. And yeah. it was originally released in 1976 after the studio tinkered with it for, like, a, a season. It's, uh, yeah, that's crazy. That's, uh, you know, that's another big one. At least, at least like, unlike New Leaf, she got to have this one back and, and we get to see the way she wanted to see it. Or at least I yeah. hope I saw it the way she wanted to see it. I assume the one that we watched was the uh, was her cut of the film. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. I think um, there is cer- there's certainly a possibility that there was more footage that was intended to be included. The script, I believe, that is sort of circulating around is the script that was originally written uh it's not a kind of transcript of what ended up on the screen and it's very close i didn't read the whole thing but i saw clips of it it's very close to um 
what ended up on the screen, which is something that, that I'm sure we'll talk about uh, as the movie goes on. But um, I think the first thing to just point out is that she really didn't have the kind of gap that it seems like she had in between her movies. This was uh, released uh, sort of, if you want to call it that, more like dumped uh, by the studio in 1976. Um, but in reality, it was intended to have a 1974 uh, opening. So she really, after The Heartbreak Kid, started making another movie uh, almost right away. Um, and it was the post-production process. Well, the, the, the filming of the movie took much longer than they intended, but it was yeah. the post-production process that really dragged this out. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of hearsay and, um, uh, conflicting stories about why it took so long to get this movie out, but it ended up, uh, coming out in 1976. Um, and, uh, it's, the, the process was uh, extremely laborious. Uh, she shot, ended up shooting um, 1.4 million feet of film for the movie. Yeah, um, that's like uh, twice as much or three times as much film as uh, Gone with the Wind. Yeah, although that makes it sound crazy, but I actually looked up because you had mentioned on our first season how much film uh, Kubrick had shot for The Shining. Yeah. And it was 1.3 million. Uh, so it was almost almost the same amount. Uh, and in Kubrick's case, uh, people are like, well, he's got to do that much to get his genius out. You know, he's just got to keep <laughs> shooting and shooting. And then that's where the really interesting stuff happens. But when Elaine May, Elaine May does it, people are like, what was she thinking? Well, yeah, that's, a, that's part of that whole thing, right? The double standard. I mean, yeah. she has... She has Final Cut, which a lot of male directors did. I mean, Dennis Hopper around this time was pulling the same move she was pulling on uh, the last movie, stealing the footage, running right. away to another country with it. And he's like a rebel genius. Right. Elaine May does and It's like, don't make another movie for 10 more years. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and yeah, she, she, that you touched on just now that during the, the fight, um, to, uh, wrestle this uh, film back from the studio uh, she gave a couple of the reels of footage to her husband's friend uh, to hide it in his house or garage in Connecticut um, she was married to I, I had actually hadn't even noticed this before she was married to her analyst she married her psychiatrist in like the um, mid to late or mid 60s um, and was still married to him at the time that she was making this movie. Um, and so he, he got involved, uh, and, and eventually she used that for, for ransom to get the movie back, uh, in under her control. Um, but the, the, the post-production process on this movie is interesting. Be, I read one place. This is only one place and I could not verify it any, anywhere else. So forgive me if I'm spreading kind of vicious rumors, but I read that the, the sound recording, um, kind of they basically like fucked up when they were recording the sound on the movie and so that was a big part of the post-production process uh and why it took so long was that they were trying to get it so that they could you could hear what everybody was saying yeah um, it seemed that, that that makes total sense because there was a lot of adr done in that film like you could hear yeah 
you know, the sink there's is a, off in some yeah. spots. And yeah. there's a great story about Peter Falk uh, in like 1975. Somebody, one of his friends was like driving down the street and saw, saw him pulled over and was like, uh, what do you, uh, what are you working on Peter? And he said, uh, Mikey and Nikki, what else? <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Um, well, but that... he also said before he made this movie that uh, that the script was the best movie he had ever read. Um, and th- this movie was uh, supposedly, again, this is all just mythology, so who knows if it's actually true, but it supposedly was based on a one-act play that Elaine May had written uh, while she was um, a teenager. Um, and so, you know, th- this, this, I guess, had been... Um, knocking around in her head for a while, which is interesting because it, it, it feels so much like a seventies movie to me. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's just that really strong, um, feeling of that. Well, that's where, that's where I think the, the, the process that she, that she went through for the creation of the film, which is what caused the uh, massive amount of footage she was uh, rolling on was, uh, such a, improvised improvisational by in nature by the way that it was worked through and blocked i think the two of them both falk and cassavetes uh for those who don't know this film stars uh peter falk and john cassavetes and they play the titular characters and they go through their uh an one one night in their lives as a low level kind of like mob type people in the philadelphia area and but anyway so uh, yeah, I think the way she, her process was what caused so much footage to be shot. I think there was, uh, it was improvised just by the nature of what it was. I mean, cause they were also, not only was it, you know, you think massive amount of footage, they were shooting three cameras. So three cameras means that you're going to burn three times as much footage per shot yeah. anyway. So, you know, it is that whole double standard of she burned so much footage, but really she had three cameras going most of the time because of the uh she didn't know exactly what i don't know she planned but uh she left a lot of the uh just action the bit the uh the the small moments uh left it up to the two of them who were uh really good at kind of like building these characters through small ticks and gestures and repetitive motions and i think she left 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 a lot of that up to them and uh you know the words. The words are hers, but a lot of the uh, action and busyness of the characters are right. uh, the two actors. So I can see where it started as a one-act play because the first, you know, third of the movie is almost in a hotel room before it comes outside. Yeah. And even then, you could keep most of it still in that hotel. The yeah. scenery really doesn't affect what's going on in that film. Yeah, although I do think it's a really great uh, kind of city movie you get mm-hmm. a real feel for the environment and kind of it, it feels very similar to kind of mean streets like it, it it feels very much like it it can only be set in this one place uh and you 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 feel like you're on those streets um when they're on the streets um yeah, I think the improvisational aspect of this movie is really interesting. I mean, I think the fact that she shot it with three cameras was, like you said, uh, she wanted to leave it up to them. And so she didn't want to miss out on something that she thought was really special from an angle that um, would you'd be able to capture it 
yeah. uh, in a in a more compelling way. And for um, and for cutting purposes, you know, if if something yeah. really fantastic happens in this camera, then it's picked up on the other two, so you can cut with it. Versus if it just got awesome in the wide, and they can't recreate that type of moment in the close-ups, then that kind of right. limits you in terms of editing. So. Yeah, it's a it's it's a technique and it's hard. You uh, usually with the three camera stuff, something suffers, and you and most of the time it's image quality because you can't really light for three angles at the same time because it doesn't work. So a lot of this felt like low level lighting and kind of just street lighting, which uh, uh, left the performances to you know just be able to flourish and uh, you really work them. Yeah, and I think that is so much of where the idea that you know, along with the fact that it, the movie stars John Cassavetes. But I think I think that's where so much of, of the idea that this is intended to be like a Cassavetes tribute comes from. Mm-hmm. Like, these are all things that... Um, it's kind of like with the neorealist movement, how, like, a lot of the hallmarks of it are things that were by necessity because they were working in a, a place that didn't have a lot of resources. Like she made uh, a certain kind of movie that Cassavetes regularly made. And in order to do that in an effective way, you kind of have to shoot this way. It kind of has to look like this and it kind of has to have that feel. And, you know, I think just because Cassavetes is in the movie, it's easy to go to his films, but the actual kind of character interactions and, um, and themes of the movie and tone of the film, I think are not super similar to Cassavetes. Yeah. Um, so I think that aspect of it is something that is a bit overblown, even though it's really easy to come into this and, and see it as a, and mistake it for a Cassavetes movie. I think ultimately it's very much in line with the previous films, uh, that she had made, um, it's just that style is, is very different than what she had done previously. Yeah. So speaking of style and speaking of tone, Matt, what'd you think about Mikey and Nikki? So I really loved this movie. Um, and it was weird because this, first of all, I should say, uh, and I'm saying this after just saying this is not that much like a Cassavetes movie. I was surprised how much I liked it because I, I have to admit, I'm not a huge Cassavetes fan. Um, I like a lot of his later sort of seventies and eighties work. Love streams is probably my favorite Cassavetes film. Um, and I think a lot of his movies feel very processy and not, uh, they they sort of lack the, um, emotional connection that I am looking for from character based films. Uh, and I didn't feel that at all during this movie. I, I was, I was very engaged, uh, throughout it. Um, even though it's a very difficult watch. Um, I think that, it's a very messy movie, uh, and that made it less effective than the previous two films that we've watched. But there's some, there's something that there's like an undeniable charm to the movie, uh, which is weird to say, cause it's, it's pretty dark. Um, 
but yeah, I, I, I began to have a lot of affection for, I mean, especially the female characters, but the two guys as well. I mean, I think that they're so uh, childlike and uh, we'll get into that, but um, there's, there's a certain level of innocence here that is uh, endearing. And, um, I, I can fully see why people who are attracted to a certain kind of movie would find this more compelling than the previous two films. Uh, I, I'm not one of those people, but I think that there is something really special in this movie that, um, that I think, uh, more people, you know, would, should, should see. And, um, and I think it deserves a higher profile than it has. And I, I, I did really enjoy it. Um, what did you think of it? Yeah, I uh, I think my initial reaction to it was was poor because I think because after rolling out of two just like fantastic American comedies, I was kind of expecting it to be in the same vein, like some a dark comedy of some nature, um, and so I didn't know what to make of it the first time I watched it. I was kind of like, uh, that didn't feel as good as her other movies. But then, you know, it was a week between my first watch and my second watch, and it the a lot of the stuff, uh, a lot of the moments, a lot of the performance uh, stayed with me, a lot of the lines, and I thought about it and ruminated it and, like, really kind of started wanting to go back, and I watched it again, and it is. It is a messy movie. And it is hard to watch just due to the the nature of the content and the nature of the relationship and the messy relationships that these ugly characters are kind of involved in. Um, I'm sure we'll get into the uh, the relationship between these men and the women in their lives and their you know like you said the the childlike aspects of uh, of how they uh, behave. But uh, uh, yeah, I. Uh, I liked it more than I thought I would, but I don't think I liked it as much as I should, maybe. And I was—that's what I'm. That's why I look forward to these conversations with you, so we can hash out some stuff and kind of, uh, yeah, I can work out my feelings. This is our therapy session. This is what <laughs> this is what this is for us. As, as much as uh, these characters spend their night hanging out with each other and kind of working through their friendship. Uh, we're going to spend some time together, work through this movie. I think. <laughs> Do you feel, well, hope, uh, maybe we'll, and maybe we'll even get married someday. You know, um, one day you can hide some footage for me. Do you think, <laughs> uh, do, do you think that you, um, had a mixed reaction to it because of the messy technical aspects of it? Or do you think that it's more on an emotional level that you're having trouble connecting with it? I think the first time it was the messy technical aspects because if this was like a first film, if this was her out of the gate film, yeah. I, I'm, I would be more like, I think it's that kind of aspect, like a more forgiving, like you're more forgiving of a first timers film or super low budget indie films, technical problems because of the heart and story that usually goes into the final product, which is why it gets its recognition. Whereas this film, because it's her third film, I, I kind of like cringed at a lot of the technical problems that were going on. Yeah. And then the second time, it was because of the emotional content. Like now that I was like, okay, just get over this stuff. You know, you know that she probably had tons of problems with uh, so studio support and editing support. It was probably taken away and she made do with what she had. And 
Um, but once I kind of got that out of my head and watched it again, uh, you know, it's it's like a lot of films of the 70s with some of these really uh, just not anti-hero, but they're just really kind of like characters with so many flaws. It's hard. It's It was hard for me to connect emotionally to them. And yeah. I think Peter Falk was my way into this because, you know, uh, Nikki's a mess and he's a hot mess. But then it's the Nikki graveyard scene that draws, makes me more compelling. It makes him more compelling a character. And I just, yeah, it kind of bounces back and forth because it's after that scene at the graveyard that my allegiances kind of switch a little bit. And I just don't know, you know, what to make of anyone because uh, they are messy characters like i think uh i read somewhere someone comparing this to the godfather like a better representation of mob life and i'm like oh, okay yeah. well the godfather seen through like you know sepia colored lenses of like a better life that used to be for the mob and even though it's messy and those characters are morally corrupt um you know it is more of a romanticized story this isn't there's nothing romantic about this story that she's telling it is very much in a, you know, as much as the image is just a ungussied up, unglossy, it, like the characters are just the same. It's ugly, it's not pretty, and it's uh, it becomes uh, stripping away all the veneer to be able to see like the really, like the real quality of the uh, wood underneath of this uh, frame, which I... I, you know, I want to go back and watch this again. If that says anything, like, I do want to watch it a third time and kind of dig in even deeper. I can see how it could be compelling enough to want to keep on working at it. Yeah, it's definitely uh, a less glamorous uh, portrayal. It's similar to kind of like Donnie Brasco. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's much more Al Pacino sitting around in a tracksuit uh, on, his, on his Lazy Boy than it is, um, you know, uh, where my children come to play with their toys. I mean, there's there's certainly a large level of um, glamorization in The Godfather, obviously, but there's also a level in which they kind of forgive their characters for their um, transgressions because they um, bought into the American dream in whatever way that they could. Um, here there's none of that it's very depressing and there's no where to go but just you know the 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 grave basically and the portrayal of these two characters in particular makes it feel a lot like they've bought into their own hype um you know it kind of almost similar to in heartbreak kid how that's a deconstruction of the rom-com like this is this feels like a response to the godfather and gangster movies um uh it, you know friends of eddie coyle came out around this time that that's an, a similar film in terms of just robert mitchum is so uh depressing in that movie yeah you know it, i think that there is a level of uh it's very difficult i think in movies um, to make usually criminals are portrayed either as sort of um, these like larger than life glamorous uh, anti-heroes or as cautionary tales of like 
you know, flaming out things like Public Enemy and Scarface and stuff like yeah. that. Um, but it's very difficult to make being a criminal just seem like a real bummer, which I think is probably yeah. how it is most of the time. Uh, yeah, this this has the feeling of a bummer. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. I, and yeah. there's so much, like, it's kind of like, you know, depressing, like, mid, middle management uh, or, or even just like underling, like, you know, part-timer, like you, you make fun of me in front of the boss, like, you know, he doesn't like me, I'm not going to get my promotion. Like, it's like office space almost, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so th that aspect of it is difficult to pull off in films. Um, and I think she does a good job of that. Obviously, I think, you know, in, in Friends of Eddie Coyle, there's the lots of very suspenseful moments and there's a great bank bank heist sequence um there's nothing like that here it, this is a very small movie there's only one scene of any real kind of action and it's the final scene in the film and we will be talking about that by the way uh for anybody listening um this film is on the criterion channel on filmstruck by the way so if you have a subscription uh, you can watch it there it's also on canopy as well um canopy just came to my library oh nice I'm so psyched yeah i'm gonna dig in this weekend yeah it's the best um so i i you know i think this is definitely not uh it's not like heartbreak kid in that heartbreak kid still has romantic comedy elements to it you know like the kooky scene or the uh the is she isn't she kind of back and forth kind of thing um this is not really a gangster movie in any real way it's it's very much about these two characters and their stunted evolutions um but it does kind of when you look at it from further back it does have this real feeling of like this is what this is really like not what you typically see in the movies. Um, and it does it in like this very subtle way. Um, the one other thing I wanted to say about what you were saying is that um, this movie feels like the least funny black comedy ever made like that <laughs> in in a lot of ways this still i was surprised i was kind of expecting it to be this gritty drama with like really you know that 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 was very you know emotionally affecting and disturbing and there are some really disturbing parts of this movie but um even during the most disturbing parts i was kind of like I'm not laughing right now, but this is like the blackest of all comedy. Like I kind of felt this very uncomfortable feeling like I was supposed to be laughing during those moments. Yeah. Um, and that, that aspect of this film is kind of what made me love it. There is a certain sort of genius in here that cuts to the core of what comedy is that made me extremely uncomfortable. I think in particular, the scene with the, uh, the woman played by, um, uh, Rose Eric, I think, uh, oh, yeah, Annie. Annie. Um, that scene is sort of a comedic scene. 
and I say that as somebody who didn't find it funny at all and it was deeply disturbing but it's kind of the blackest of comedy like the way that that she is interacting with John Cassavetes and then Peter Falk how he uh tells her how much how it's wonderful how she reads the news like if you describe that scene in a comedic fashion without getting to the meat of what is actually being done to this woman and, and like how it's being done. Um, it's, it kind of sounds like a scene that would be in a comedy. Yeah. If you, if you were to, if you were to take a little bit of the edge off of it and made it and made it less about, uh, you know, uh, John Cassavetes, like he's basically, you know, hovering over her like a bird of prey waiting to pounce on her. And, you know, they're trying to make polite, the other two are trying to make polite conversation, like what's about, you know, what's going on isn't really going on. And so there's that awkward, like, you know, you see it in uh, Peter Fox's face. He's just like, oh, this is not, I don't want any of this. This isn't what, this is is nothing what I wanted. Like, I thought we were going to go see like a traditional type of prostitute, a girl he knows, and uh, it would be a business transaction and there would be no emotion. And here we are having this uh, young blonde, uh, you know, talking about how she's, uh, she really likes listening to the news and she's interested in what's going on in Vietnam right now. And, uh, you know, human, she's humanizing herself and uh, it's Peter so Fox bleak. sees it. Oh, it's so bleak. Peter Fox sees it, but the, you know, John Cassavetes is not interested in that. He's here for something else. And yeah. uh, and that says a lot about his character and about Peter Fox's character. You know, Peter Fox is trying to see things in a bit bigger a bigger picture, a bigger light, a longer a longer view of things and uh, John Cassavetes uh uh Nikki is just now and that's, you know, I'm into the immediate, into the now, into this gratification now which is what got him into this whole mess to begin with, you know? He but then Cassavetes, like, talks uh, talks him into it pretty easily. I mean, he's basically ready to go um, within a, a minute of him just being like, oh, yeah, you just got to go in there and, you know, it, she's totally fine. I mean, this almost had a feeling of, like, a really uh, sexist um, 80s teen comedy, like, where like, oh, yeah. the two guys... Like one is like the the cocky guy, and one's like the awkward nerd, and they like go to see the local prostitute or local uh, slut to like get yeah. them to lose their virginity. Well, and um, that's the and that's the that's part of their character development. I mean, part of the us as understanding as the audience of as uh, their relationship, because you can see Peter Falk kind of nod into it, and then all John Cassavetes has to do is bully him a little bit into doing it, right. And then he's like right there, and you you can almost see, uh, you know, maybe Peter Falk wasn't gonna be in, you know, the Jewish mob until John Cassavetes got him into it. You know, like you can easily see him going a different different route, a different life style. But uh, you know, his buddy Nikki, who was uh, there for him when his uh, his uh, brother was sick, you know, he's gonna go do whatever he wants because, uh, yeah. There's so many, there's so many, like, as we're talking about it, I'm just making all these connections and it's, uh, once again, the film's getting better in my mind and growing in my estimation because as you start to look at their interactions and their characterizations, uh, you can see so many subtle and nuanced layers, uh, 
with the story too. And I think that's one of the things that she also doesn't do where the Godfather is spelling things out for you very clearly. And a lot of movies of this style are spelling things out very clearly. She's letting the characters and their behaviors start to paint the picture of the life and the world they live in versus setting up the world first and then putting these characters in it. Because it isn't until, geez, it isn't until we actually see uh, Sid Fine and Dave Resnick that I had no idea that they were literally both involved in organized crime of some nature. I thought one was just super paranoid or kind of ripped off a bookie or something, but not to the level that they're actually in, which is yeah. still a, a very low level, pathetic level of uh, mob or, you know. Yeah, and they don't, I mean, the there are hints at what he supposedly did, um, you know, something about a bank and he took money yeah. um, and he, you know, he was involved with this other guy who got killed, but like... There's very it's it's not at all uh, clear what what they did. It's really just the MacGuffin for moving these yeah. characters through the night. And um, one interesting thing about that is just that um, the second time I watched this movie, uh, there's a lot of indications that Peter Falk uh, was involved in the hit um, in the beginning of the film. And Cassavetes is onto it immediately, uh, and there's uh, there's sort of all these moments when like like when Falk comes back from the store uh, with the cream. There's this uh, instead of saying why do you think there's a hit out on you, he says how do you know how did you know there's a hit out on you. And Cassavetes has this moment of like a look in his eye and he gets that through the first half of this film a number of times where Falk just has these tells that give away that he's involved. And when the first time I watched this movie, I definitely thought Cassavetes' character was, uh, Nikki was just, um, paranoid through the first yeah, half of the movie me, me too that until the, the wife called, uh, to let, let them know, let Ned Beatty know, know where, uh, they were going. Um, I definitely thought that this guy was really, you know, on the up and up and he was that, that Nikki was just going crazy. Um, but it's very clear the second time through that he's not crazy and that he is on to him through, you know, from the beginning, basically. That makes sense because, uh, you know, yes, I, the first time I watched it, I agree with you. I thought he was paranoid as well. And then as the, the second time you can see the, the the moments that are giving him away and you can kind of see it in the performance a bit more and it's a uh, it becomes interesting because then the once you kind of it's it's hard it, it does require a second viewing i think if people watch this movie once and are just like meh i highly recommend a second viewing because there's something going on in this that is a lot more a lot more than the surface level appears and I think that's one of those one of those pieces because then it becomes a journey not of not of uh, just you know two guys on their last night kind of together uh, running around town uh, you know a really depressing depressing as hell after hours it's more of a it's it's uh, Nikki spending his evening trying to remind M Mikey how good of friends they were 
and how much their lives are similar and basically like don't let them kill me don't be a part of this because i know you are you know trying to help him you know save him and cover him and uh you know eventually we get into nikki's uh you know he he finally kind of just gives up on the idea that you know really they're not the best friends and it's something that he's just like i don't want to you know he has that moment where he finally blows up at him and he hurts him he hurts him a lot and i can't you know that's why i want to watch it again i can't tell if that's a true like uh revelation of nikki's character that really he is more like this which is why peter fox mikey would betray him or if that was kind of like the kicking the dog and trying to shoo it off into the woods moment of, you know, fine, get out of here. I never liked you anyway. Yes. You know, the being a little more heroic saying, oh, God, they're going to kill you once they find out that you've been helping me. So I'm going to get rid of you so you have an out. So, you know, I, there's, I you know. Yeah, there's a lot of really uh, mysterious uh, character moments here that feel real immediately but you still kind of question why it's happening or sort of what is going on beneath the surface. Um, You know, I was kind of wondering throughout, because there are some moments that you could read as Mikey changing his mind and feeling Mm -hmm. like he wants to help Nikki. You know, do you, like, I think the one that comes to mind for me the most is where he says that he's trying to get, um, Nikki to get on the plane with him and go somewhere. Yeah. You know, it's definitely possible he's just trying to push him to another place where he can get killed, but it feels like Peter Falk is changing his mind there, where he's saying, all this stuff is garbage, you know, I don't want to deal with any of this anymore, like, you and I, we're friends, we're buddies, let's get out of here and do something else with our lives. Um, did you feel that way, or do you feel like I, he's he's I always did. on the yeah. No, I think I think there there were moments. I think that, like I said, that cemetery scene. It's that's yeah. the, it's after that cemetery scene that they decide that you know I think that's when he says, "Let's get on a plane. Let's just go. Let like let's not tell anyone. Let's not do anything. Let's just go." And it's uh it's after that moment that you know I think if Nikki would have trusted him in that moment, yeah. he probably would have you know had a happier ending or you know a relatively happier ending, but uh. I think that's the same scene where they're playing, uh, like the the hand slap game. Yeah, yeah. Playing. I mean, there's yeah. so much. Uh, there's, you know, as as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, there's so much, um, uh, like childhood stuff in here. Like just the way Cassavetes behaves, like sticking out his tongue at the woman on the bus. Um, the fact that at the bar they have both beer and milk on the table. I don't know why that would be. <laughs> um, well, I assumed it was still part of his ulcer thing, but yeah. it also can be very much. I don't know if that was a, uh, an, <laughs> yeah, a childhood thing or he go you know. well, and he goes to buy ice cream at the store, you know, and he wants to like buy a comic. Um, the uh, and then like the funniest line in this movie when it, when Peter Fox's wife has to write down. Uh, um, some information when he calls her and she asks their kid if uh, if he can get her a crayon. Yeah. And the kid's like, a crayon? And she's like, a Crayola. <laughs> <laughs> what? 
<laughs> so great. Oh, that's uh, great. Yeah, so I mean there's so many little things like that and like it all they always feel so childish. I mean, especially in like their interact their violent interactions. They're very um like like you know, nineteen thirties yeah. hoodlum. Yeah, they're a bunch of ten year old kids urchins. running around. Yeah, a bunch of ten year old kids running around and I think those are the moments in which uh Mikey, uh Peter Fox character, um relates with him the most and feels like okay this is like how it used to be and you know like i keep i keep bringing it back to that cemetery scene and that's like that's the moment where you get a little bit of backstory and realize how they became friends but also a bit of the uh dynamic in which you can understand why they're why they are uh why uh mikey might be willing to portray nikki because mikey's dad liked nikki more than him yeah, and you know you have that probably some uh, sibling sibling rivalry that he didn't have with his younger brother because he was so sick and he lost all his hair and and so but you have John Cassavetti saying that just that beautiful line like uh, I wish your dad was still alive I wish your mom was still alive I wish my parents were still alive you know he has that moment of like I wish we were still kids and none of this mattered and none of this was for keeps anymore it was all just a game. Because I think, you know, he probably spent most of his life, like, still playing it like it was a game. Which, you know, then he was finally caught and it, the stakes are real, you know. Um, yeah, there's there's lots of there's lots of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's just fantastic the way that they go about doing that. And, uh, and we, have, we haven't even, you know, talked about their relationship with uh, the women in their lives. We've, we've touched on his visit over to uh, Annie. Um, which is his girl on the side and uh, just kind of like how they uh, you know he she really believes you know as most of those side girls uh, in films of this nature that uh, Nikki loves her and he probably has you know been nice to her in the past and whatnot but it's almost like now he's got to show off to his friend Mikey and show him you know, what a real man's like. And, and it still is that child, it's that childish fumblings of understanding what sex and love and all that stuff is. And it's uh, embarrassing and awkward and just horrible. Like, he, you know, she's very clear. She wants no part of this sexual interaction. And it just is foisted upon her and forced upon her and... Peter Falk has to stand awkwardly in the kitchen waiting for the uh, sweating and grunting to be over with um, for his turn, which is just ugh, gross. Yeah, uh, and Nikki's, I mean, Nikki's lack of respect for her seems so much like it comes out of his lack of self-respect. You know, yes. the, the the fact that he would push all of his friends on her because he assumes that she would sleep with anybody if she's sleeping with him. Um, and obviously she's, you know, in, in a similar position where she just hates herself and the situation that she's in and is unable to extricate herself from it. Um, it's again, it's just, it's so, it, it feels so much like the flip side of, what we think of as conventional comedy and it's just the dark the dark half like of that coin yeah and it's so but this is so dark i mean so dark and and it it feels like this very uh 
yeah, it feels like this very icky thing that makes you sort of reevaluate the other movies that you, all the other movies that you've seen in your life. Yes, it does. Um, yeah, it's uh it's very pointed like the message she's getting across in that scene and it but it's yeah, it's hard to it's hard to be, you know, <laughs> that's a, it's a good friendship test. Hey, do you think that scene's funny? Oh, it's hilarious. Nah, no. We yeah. Can't <laughs> we can't hang out anymore. <laughs> well, and then and then the scene with Nikki's wife is not significantly oh. better um no no not at all it's definitely like a pretty good representation of just how um easy it is for these men to get away with their behavior and um and how difficult the situations that these women find themselves in really are um you know the the way he just basically wears her down um through his own self-loathing in a way that he's not really aware of. Um, it's pretty heartbreaking. It is. It's that level of, uh, fine. I'll, like I, I fear the threat of physical violence and I fear the threat of what this person will do to me and my family. So I'm willing to just kind of give in so it won't happen, which yeah. is a position that I'm sure many, many women have been in, in their lives and which they're just like, fine. I, I don't want to fight this anymore because I'm tired. I'm just tired of it all. And, you know, she could see she built up the gumption to finally leave him and take the kids and move to her mom's. And then, you know, there he is showing up at the door again and she struggles and tries and then just kind of gives in. And it's, uh, it's yeah, it's heartbreaking. Uh, not because of their failed relationship or the possibilities of what could be, but it's heartbreaking and just watching her and uh, give up at that moment and just let him kind of have his way again and kind of like give in to him just to make it easier. Um, which is, you know, as much as that is really sad, <laughs> I think Mikey and his wife's relationship is even worse. Like he's so dismissive of her and doesn't really care about her. Like there's no, there's no sense of any sort of love there. Like it's, she's happy to see him. She's willing to stay up till five in the morning to hang out with him. And he is just like, just go to bed, get out of here. Don't, don't do that. Go over there. Why are you doing that? Or barely, you know, I don't even think he makes eye contact with her for a long stretch of their interaction together. And that's even more, you know, two sides of the same coin. Both, uh, both yeah. don't know how to deal with women and both don't know what to do or how to be uh, a companion to uh, their uh, the women in their lives. She didn't she didn't know that he had a brother who died. And they, yeah. you know, they've been married for uh, ostensibly many years. I mean, they have a, a fairly old uh younger kid to get uh together. Yeah. Um it's clear that they don't really uh interact much and I mean that that scene uh, after they come out of the bar where he convinces Nikki that he needs to call his wife, uh, you know, Peter Falk can be pretty convincing when he wants to be convincing and he is in no way convincing when he says, Oh yeah, no, you know, I call my wife if I'm going to be late. Like there's, and, and Cassavetes has that same look on his face where he's like, I know you're bullshitting me right now. Yep. And you know, what am I going to do to get out of this situation? Um, and that's when he, you know, that's why he keeps on changing their destinations after yeah. he's made his yeah. phone calls. <laughs> Do you think he tries to get into a fight at the bar um, 
where by where they're playing Love Train, which is a OJ, OJ's song, um, who are who are kind of like a, a pillar of the uh, Philadelphia sound. Um, do you think uh, do you think he tries to get into a fight to go to uh, the hospital or like to get out of the situation, or do you think he's just being a jerk? And do you think he's thinking, you know, it, really in all of these situations, do you think he's thinking that far ahead? I, how, how clever do you think he's being throughout this movie? I don't think he's being clever as much as just being like trapped, like a rat in a cage, like like willing to do anything to escape a situation. Yeah. I think, as with most things, it's uh, the possibility of having sex with another lady that evening is what he's excited about, like a girl that he's able to chat up at the bar. And the fight portion, I think, comes from just... I think just that level of uh, mob racism, like I can, yeah. I can kick all your asses. It's all fine. You, you, you know, yeah. I don't think it's, I don't think it's like a, a, uh, something like really clever, like, Oh, if we get in a fight here, then maybe I can get out of there. And I think it's more of a, that fish out of water scene that happens. Of, <laughs> you know, it's crazy. This, if, if you put the brat pack in this movie and make it less about the mob than a night on the town, trying to get to a party or something, it's basically it has all the same characteristics of like Animal House or, yeah. uh, you know, any of the John Hughes films because it is it's two guys they go to all they hit all those stops and you know that scene can't help but feel reminiscent of uh, the Animal House scene. Yeah, they go to the Roadhouse totally. or even when uh, what is it? Uh, even the scene in uh, the French Connection where they're uh, where they're rousting. Uh, Resting some of the black suspects and going into that bar and really just causing problems. It's the same thing. It's a uh, white men shouldn't have to fear anything, so we can go into these places and cause problems and come out relatively unscathed. Um, it's a weird. Uh, it's a weird dynamic, and uh, I think it was necessary though. I think Elaine May's uh, tuned in enough to, you know, as we've said about her other movies, uh, representation of females in her films are important to her. I'm sure at this point making a movie about Philadelphia, it was probably also important to her to also have some representation of the neighborhoods that are there. And so setting a scene there um, as a way of like desperation of trying to get off the street and I need to make a phone call and then putting it into a, a neighborhood that they're unfamiliar with uh, also kind of makes them, uh, pushes those two characters together again because they were kind of getting a little more uh, starting to drift again in terms of their relationship at this point of the film and then by putting them together in that situation where they have to rely on yeah. each other to get out of it um, I think is another way of her kind of getting those characters to be on the same page again before the final kind of blow up betrayal and uh, you know moment it's funny like the more we talk about this movie the more I'm seeing it as like a one crazy night screwball it, comedy it is it's 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 like a it's like the pitch black dark as hell yeah. after hours you know it's it's they it's, sneak into a cemetery together you know yeah they, like ned Beatty is the bumbling uh hitman or like the, imagine the, ned the truant, Beatty. the truant officer trying yeah, to and, chase them down yeah totally i mean in the screwball comedy version of this like um what's his name uh Jeffrey Jones from uh, in Ferris Bueller, <laughs> like the principal, like he, yep. you know, there, there's like this, uh, like he almost gets him, you know, but he gets away, like, 
instead in this version like ned bay is basically just sitting in a car being bored and like you know staring at his watch all the time (laughs) yeah Um, i i wonder i wonder like knowing uh elaine may's uh like style and her background and her uh her writing if if this was wasn't originally maybe even pitched to the studio who were so mad at it as a more of a a dark comedy like another one of her dark comedies but maybe falk and cassavetes and were mining the information and really brought this just such a realism to what they were doing that it kind of didn't work that way anymore and so her editing brought it to a different film altogether which it wouldn't surprise me because it is it does have the beats and the arc of a screwball comedy of a comedy of that nature of just like you know two guys getting getting stuck in all this uh, situations because i mean i guess you would say the the comedic other side of this film would be the in-laws you know as you know the same kind of thing guys keep on getting into these situations to comedic effect but uh, that one is more on the comedy side than on the uh on this such dramatic scale such a dark scale as uh this one yeah yeah i mean the in-laws you could definitely spin as a straightforward action movie like it's almost like true lies or something Mm -hmm. like that um so there there is that that feeling here of like this movie could quite easily become a comedy in different hands. I mean, you wouldn't end up with the with the same ending most likely, but there, there is, there is that feeling. I mean that, but th- that's what's so amazing to me about this movie being so as tightly scripted as it um, purportedly was there, there, you know, obviously was so much, uh, so many takes uh, so much uh, experimentation from the actors and, and probably from the director. Um, there were five cinematographers on this movie. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the editing process was, um, at one point, 12 people were working on this movie simultaneously. Uh, the, including Elaine May herself, uh, was editing it. Um, and then that's just one, one side of it because then on the other side, there's two or three editors that were working for the studio who were cutting their version of the movie. Um, which I'd love to see because apparently it's just like a continuity disaster. Yeah, um, I heard it's just a big floppy burning mess. Yeah, like, and they there's only put lots it in of for like two days just yeah, to meet their contract. Right. Yeah, and there's lots of of uh, choppy editing in the film as it's uh, as it's finished. Uh, so I can only imagine <laughs> yeah. how rough and ragged it was uh, at that point. I mean, the and then the other thing the other uh the other anecdote we didn't mention was just the idea of her uh supposedly uh letting the the cameras continue to roll after <laughs> Cassavetes and Fock had left the set and somebody was like should we turn off the cameras uh uh why aren't we turning the cameras off and she said they might come back yeah <laughs> which like is amazing and is a total uh fuck you mind mind fuck but like it's also like it feels very much like something that would happen on like a Mike Lee movie where they have a rough outline of, or a Kubrick movie even yeah, where they have a rough outline of what they're going to do, but they don't know exactly what the words are. They're going to end up on the screen, but there's a sense here that the, that what, what was on the page is on the screen. It's just that the, 
depth and complexity of how these performances come across was not there. Yeah, and I almost I, feel like the the rigidity of the words probably freed Falk and Cassavetes in a way that they weren't totally um, freed in Cassavetes' early films because that improvisation and that feeling that like actors should do the spontaneous thing can often come across as forced and um, and almost more rote than if they're just reading the mm. words that are on the page. And, uh, you know, I wonder if that is what I'm really responding to in these performances, because I, they do feel very real. I, I agree with you. I think a lot of uh, the improv type of uh, performances that happen when you're kind of just given a loose script, I feel there's more meandering in terms of finding the character or yeah. most, most actors, uh, you know, not, not to speak ill of any, any actors, but a lot of times when we're talking about uh, improvisation, character building, it's more kind of like side stories to make the character richer and deeper and less about uh, functioning for the actual story that they're trying to tell. And with this, it's almost like, the script was so tight and the words were right there, they were able to memorize it. And then it was able to allow them to have their performances be the strong suit or be the thing that they could play with. So like, you know, I bet the hand slap game, uh, you just, all the, yeah. all the little like physical, it was all the physical stuff that they brought to the words that, uh, that is what I, you know, makes me prick up my ears and kind of like watch and uh and it took me like i said two and it'll be a third viewing to kind of really kind of understand what is going on in terms of how this film is uh being constructed which allows me to finally kind of like let it wash over me and just be a part of uh what's going on because uh it is it's a it's a rough one they imbue uh, both Falk and uh, Cassavetes imbue their characters with so much realism and tics and just disgusting human behavior that it it becomes hard to kind of uh, empathize or sympathize with them. And not saying you have to, but to get the full emotional bore of the ending, um, it really does hit you how horrible what happens at the end is like, there's that moment of, uh, you know, he's, you know, Peter, uh, Mikey's character, Mikey, uh, you, you feel for him. You feel that moment of, you know, I'm letting my childhood, I'm making a mistake. I'm not doing the right thing. Uh, self-preservation at the same time, but it's, it's, it's hard. Um, for those who have listened this long and haven't seen the film yet, I would highly recommend you do um, <laughs> before we go into the fact that, you know, uh, Nikki gets killed at the end of this film and Mikey could open the door and let him in and continue trying to help him escape. But he makes a decision to shut the door on him and just let him be on his own. And Nikki can't survive on his own. And that's, you know, the heart of this yeah. story is that, you know, he needs other people, even though, and he, even though he acts like a lone, lone person running around, making choices, hurting his friends, being, you know, rough to the women in his life. And, uh, he needs people to survive and he doesn't, uh, realize that until it's too late. And, uh, he's left with, you know, once again, like at the beginning of the movie, calling his only friend to help him out. 
And at this time, he doesn't answer the call at all. And he just closes the door, and you can see him struggling with that. You know, just run away, you dummy. Just run. You gotta run. You don't don't be here when you die, because then I won't feel. It. Then so yeah. I don't have to feel as bad. Right. Yeah. It's, well, uh, he starts hard. and he starts out in the hotel, obviously, like mm-hmm. you know, the opposite of of a of a home, and and he's literally not being let into uh, Mikey's house, like his home, um, and just gets killed right out front and i found the shift to daylight really striking in this scene yes um like i you know you, you as you're watching the first time i watched it i almost wanted to um rewind to to see when it became light out because it almost seemed like they cut from cassavetes in the dark to to it all of a sudden being daytime you see it slowly seeping in through the windows during mm-hmm. the scene with Falk and his wife but uh, when they cut to Cassavetes and it's it's basically just like the you know real morning, um, it it hits you just how real his predicament is yeah. in a way that you had at least I hadn't been feeling throughout the rest of the film. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, because and also you've got the you know the one-two punch of Ned Beatty as the assassin, and you yeah. don't expect him to win. You don't expect him to right. come out on top. Because Ned Beatty's, most of the characters he plays, with a, with a couple rare exceptions, is the bumbling, right. not very good at his job yeah. you know, characters. Scotch, and, uh, yeah, like um, and, Superman. Yeah, so, and you yeah. see him, like, you know, his character in this is great. He's, he clutches a brown paper bag the whole entire film, <laughs> and he just holds on to it. And you know there's something in there. You know that's probably his gun. It, you know, for a while it could be his sack lunch, but you know it's a gun. And when he finally gets to use it, and he finally does what he's paid to do, you know, it is it is hard because, yeah, it is. It's in the cold light of day. It is... It is sobering. There's no hiding anymore. There's no place left to hide. So now we have no shadows to hide in. Because that was another thing uh, leading up to this. There's that chase through the streets of uh, Ned Beatty and uh, Peter Fox character uh, running around trying to find John Cassavetes. And they stumble upon... Oh, that's him. No, that's not him. Oh, that's him over there. Nope, that's not him either. And so now there's no place left to hide. And he's just there at the door. No place left to go. And Ned Beatty just, you know, does what he's supposed to do, which you don't expect him to finish it. So that is a shock. That is a shocking moment in the film. And it is sobering. And it takes all the kind of, like, any sort of warmth you built or any sort of, like, feeling you had for the characters. Because you do. By the end of that movie, you're you're invested in these characters as, as horrible and bad as they are. It, uh it becomes something that uh, you can't help but feel bad about, like that this this happened, but it, it, then you also realize it was inevitable. There was no yeah. there was no other answer to this film. Like, it had to end this way. Mikey, throughout the movie, really, it feels like he wants Nikki to die. He just doesn't want to be responsible for it. Mm. And in a lot of ways, this ending is the worst situation for him because he you know I think he probably didn't want him to come in because he didn't want him to be killed in his house but 
he by by not letting him in to try to you know what he wants is you know that's what nikki wants is to come in and be protected by him and he's not willing to do that it, it's basically the the worst situation for him because i think when he's driving around with ned Beatty and he he sees him and he pretends that it's not him it, it's very much because he doesn't want to be held responsible for the situation you know he, before that he's doing what nikki wants to do you know it's nikki's idea to go to the movie uh, all this all these things like to to leave the hotel kind of thing but like the, there's nothing that he can do in that situation where he fingers nikki to pretend that he's not the one who kills him um even if he's not pulling the trigger and all of this effort that he's gone to kind of uh, distance himself or wash his hands of what he's done is uh, completely wasted because uh, ultimately, you know, he literally dies on his front doorstep because he won't let him into his house. Yeah. 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 You're absolutely right. Like everything, he, you know, that moment where we think that he's going to catch him in the streets, chasing him with uh, Ned Beatty. Uh, he wants to get out of the car because he doesn't want to be there for the moment. He wants, you know, he wants to do his his duty, and it's it's crazy. It's almost a uh, it's almost like a Greek tragedy, a power yeah. struggle of families. You know, definitely the the younger the tra- you know younger brother wanting to take the power and kill the older brother so he can ascend. And uh, you know, as much as there's not, you know, it's a pathetic ascendancy in that uh, organization. Um, cause you know, you know, was it Sid Fine and Dave Resnick, uh, the, the two guys that are the, yeah. uh, the bosses, you know, there's that one, there's a scene with, uh, Peter Falk is sitting with them and he's like, I know you don't like me and I know I'm not your favorite. And he's like, Oh, will you stop it with that stuff? And, you know, just, and it's that, it's that same thing. It's, it's, it's a, like a father son struggle, you know? Oh yeah. Nick, I mean, they're uh, so, they're so childish throughout the yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah, Nikki Nikki usurped uh, Peter Falk and uh, Nikki uh, usurped uh, Mikey in his father's eyes, and Nikki, uh, you know, has uh, has uh, been considered the favorite in now their new father's eyes. Yeah, the, the gang leader. And it's like so, East of Eden, or yeah, um, you know, yeah, to- uh, yeah, mice and men kind of thing. Yeah, it's like the the, super, the brother. Yeah, totally. Super. Yeah, just a super messy, super uh, just gritty version of it which it's it takes it takes repeat viewings to start really building that structure in your head to kind of see how actually you know as much as this movie is small how big it is in terms of its themes and uh i mean that's just talking about it with you right now has completely uh moved my opinion from one way or the other and i'm glad you know this is why we do this right this is why we have these conversations because it does it's uh it's something that if i was left on my own devices not having to have a conversation about it i might have just written it off as ah this is a messy film by elaine may and it wasn't as funny as i hoped it would be and that would just kind of be it but you know talking about it and talking about the characters and the themes you can see that there was a lot of intention a lot of depth a lot of stuff going on in this film that um you know can't be reached sometimes on your own has to be done through discourse and discussion and uh you mentioned the idea that she if this had been a first film you may have forgiven some of the technical flaws to it 
mm-hmm. um, I, which I think is a, a totally valid approach to it. Um, and I feel like I came at it almost from the opposite perspective, which is I know that this person can make a movie that lacks these technical flaws. Uh, so because they've done that before, they're trying something new now. Why, what is the reasoning behind that? Um, and, and sort of how can I approach this movie as a, as a messy, flawed film, but intentionally so? Um, and I think some of those things that were flawed about the movie were accidents. Um, because, but I think the reason for that is that she was experimenting with, uh, a different approach to a movie. Um, and and I think the reason she did that is because this style fits so well with the script that she had written. There is this feeling that if the movie was a little bit cleaner, if these characters felt less like they do in terms of their tics, in terms of the depth with which they're uh, they're delivering their lines, like the things that they're providing around what they're speaking, then the movie wouldn't have quite the same emotional impact or you know authenticity to it. Um, if you film, I guess I'm what I'm saying is like I wonder if you film this movie a little bit more like a New Leaf or Heartbreak Kid with performances that felt more like those which were a little bit more conventional hollywood performances which is not to to those are their spectacular performances in both of those movies but um this feels a little bit more like the kind of method kind of thing um do you yeah. do, do you feel like that you know i i wonder what that movie would look like i think i think uh yeah i think the decision to film it in this style makes sense yeah i think because she chose to do it in a different style and it didn't, it wasn't as satisfactory probably to them. If like the process needed to have the audio redone and the cutting didn't work as well because of all the disparity in terms of length of process for one shot to the next, because of, uh, you know, all the long takes and characterizations that were going on by the actors and improvisations. And so now they're across the street for this line, but they're on this side of the street for that line because of just how they needed to cut it for flow. Right. I think, you know, if she was to now make a second movie in this style, it would probably be perfect. She would know all the all the things that she would have to do different to make it work mm. in that style and make it and make it successful. I think it's just because it was her first time experimenting in that way. Um, I wonder if uh, you know she had so many cinematographers because there was just a cinematographer per camera, or if right. they weren't giving her the stuff she wanted, so she wanted to find someone new to do some. You know, I think they I, did uh, some reshoots too, so it yeah. may have been just availability. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's all those, it's all those pieces that I think, you know, I applaud her for experimenting and trying something new. And I think to answer your question, I think I probably would have been able to get into the story quicker and not have to work so hard into it. Yeah. I think that's, that's the only difference because I think she's overall successful in the story she's trying to tell with this style. But I think because of the, odd you know i guess we watch a lot of foreign films and we watch a lot of films that have you know italian films that have the adr as right. their primary dialogue and 
I think I was just taken aback by it and it became harder to get in because I'm noticing all the technical problems. Um, I think if it just had a little bit more, you know, if it was a little smoother in, uh, you know, we've seen successful versions of this type style of filmmaking. Uh, you know, we talked about John Cassavetes, we talked about Friedkin, um, the French connection has this loose frantic style as well, but it still feels like, uh, it is made a little more clear. So it's easier to kind of get into the, the world. I think it's just, there's, you know, the first, the first, uh, 10 minutes of this film, it's such a, uh, it's so hard to get into the world of the film that by the time I'm finally into it, like I, you know, I fear that there's probably a good, uh, large audience that didn't make it into the first, through the first half hour yeah. because of those kind of just small challenges that, you know, to some people like literally make or break a film, you know? And I think if it did have that a little bit more of a, if it was a little cleaner in terms of its sound editing. And I mean, I, I, I don't mind the lighting. It's, it's, there's so little you can do with three camera and improvised performance and probably her wanting to let them be free to go anywhere they want in the street. That main basically just means, yeah. yeah, you just throw up a big light and just blanket the area and let it go. And, uh, you know, that's the type of lighting that you see in there. It's like, there's no, natural light it's you know most of the times you can see there's a light across the street up in the air and just you know just blasting the whole area and that's all you're going to get for the scene because she wants that freedom so i think yeah to answer your question i think a little bit more would have made me probably get into the movie more but i think the style she chose to make this movie in is perfect for the type of story she's telling yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of later Demi and Altman that have that feeling that are perfect. Um, yeah. But, uh, but I mean, they both had, had 30 years of filmmaking under their belt or 20-some-odd years yeah, if you go from they, Ma- Yeah, they if you that. go from MASH to Gosford Park, there's yeah, a, uh, yeah. you know, you can see. He's yeah, especially like everything. Kansas City or like Rachel getting married. There's mm-hmm. that like loose, loose feel to them. Um, I mean, I think uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about just about this film versus her other films is, is the portrayal of masculinity and, and the way that she uses these characters to explore that both in terms of how sympathetic they are um, and how misogynistic they are and kind of how those aspects of the movie come off to you and, and in comparison to her previous films. I think uh, I find it, first of all, interesting that she, uh, I know, probably because of the nature of the time that she chose to tell male stories, um, as much as New Leaf is, you know, about two people, it's it's about one. It's about Walter Matthau. Yeah. And same Charles Grodin and Heartbreak Kid, and then we have the two male leads in this one. Um, but I think because we're seeing male stories through a female perspective, I think... Uh, the truths about how women uh, perceive men or how men are actually perceived versus how they imagine they are perceived is a lot stronger because then you can see uh, you can see their uh, the way that they are and the way that they behave a lot more clearly and truthfully and um, there is a lot of 
just uh, stereotypical uh, male, uh, uh, you know, the uh, the level of uh, guyness in this film is super high. You know, it has all the benchmarks of what it means to be a man. You know, let's go drinking and let's, uh, you know, we're yeah. not feeling well. We're going to stay up all night. We're going to go on a bender and we're going to go hit up this girl that I know and we're going to get laid and we're going to go have this, you know, and it's all... It's definitely it's like a, Scorsese, a Scorsese vibe. Yeah, it does. It has that feeling. And, but whereas Scorsese, it, uh, that maleness is correct and that's the the truth, the rightness. Uh, hers is like, it's the pathetic of it. Yeah. And, you know, some of Scorsese's movies hit the pathetic a little better than the others. But if you look at a large portion of Scorsese fans, they Glamorous. hold those characters yeah. up as a something to achieve as opposed to something to be like dude that's right. disgusting never be that person and this movie i don't think there's a single guy that's looking at them going right. oh man i want to be like nikki <laughs> look how cool he is yeah like, like she's she's turning that whole uh idealized male gangster uh masculine stereotype on its head and really re showing them that they're just a bunch of little kids pretending to be adults and none of them have matured I mean, it makes total sense at this point in her career, um, you know, you talking about her being married to a therapist, like, this is a perfect example of someone who took the uh, gangster and threw it through therapy and discovered what what levels of, you know, Freudian, uh, you know, uh, oral or anal fixation that these two characters are stuck on and, you know, developing them as that level of never being matured past that. I mean, the fact that, you know, Pete, uh, that uh, Nikki's John Cassavetti's character, Nikki, needs his milk right. before he uh, can go out and he needs his, you know, someone to take care of him. And, it, you know, Peter Falk with his need to kind of like be there and supportive and all anal about the way that he goes about doing things the right way and, it, you know, looking for approval, both of them yeah. at all times. It's it's a it's a perfect, uh, you know, setup for uh way to dissect the male stereotype and i think it's uh it's done really well like there's lots of stuff in there you're just like yes and i think that's one of those things where where the lane may being uh who she is she's able to kind of present this in a better in a better way than maybe a male director would a male director would idolize these two characters as much as they say we don't want them yeah. we don't want you to be like them there's a lot of people that are looking at the Wolf of Wall Street and not saying, yes. oh, my God, Leo DiCaprio is pathetic. They're looking at him going, nice, dude. I want to have a Coke party like that. Yeah, and both Wolf of Wall Street and Goodfellas, um, which are kind of the same movie, uh, mm. are, are um, basically like two-and-a-half-hour movie trailers that are designed to um, portray the glamorous myth of a certain kind of male masculinity as a hollow empty shell of just self-destruction um but so many people similar to what we talked about with clockwork orange um in the previous season so many people don't get that second half of it and only no. see the glamorous i mean i remember a couple of years ago somebody in like the New York Daily News or some stupid paper like that wrote a, a article about how women can never understand Goodfellas because 
the whole movie is about um, how much guys like to bust each other's balls. And like, <laughs> if that's what you come away from, from Goodfellas, then the movie was a complete failure. I mean, you're also yeah. an idiot, but like that you, there is a very dangerous line that you walk when you portray gl- violence in a glamorized fashion in order to underscore how horrible it is mm-hmm. that, um, that you're going to get a large percentage of people who don't see that as um, anything other than glamorous. You know, it's similar to, to Sopranos or, or um, Breaking Bad. Scarface, for sure. Scarface I mean, huge. Scarface, the, I don't even feel it. The thing about, problem with Scarface is, like, I don't even feel like that movie has a, a lower level of, like, actually criticizing what he's doing. I feel like it's just pure, like, this is, like, you burn bright baby and then you know then you you get out when you can well i mean and that's one of those top of the world ma that's it well i mean that's a perspective thing too because if you really if you look at i'm talking to palm and scarface yeah yeah uh you know if you if you're looking at that and you're and you're and you're going nice that's the life you're like really he's a scumbag all he wants to do is like nail his cousin like he he's me like i don't where's the glory in that like if all you're seeing is the uh is the, the first money you get the money and the then wealth you get the power yeah and the power and you're not seeing the tragedy and the downfall and the lives lost like what's what's the point like like that's a that's a cautionary tale and you're not getting it that's 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 crazy and that's the same yeah like we're talking about the those those three films like uh, these films we're talking about they're cautionary tales but people are taking away the wrong message. The, yeah. T- the, the coolness of it. Cause they're shot to make these characters totally. look cool. Yeah. Well, in any, and, I mean like even for, I don't know how you feel, but like, I don't watch Goodfellas for the message. Like it's an incredibly entertaining, well-made flashy movie with lots to look at. That's the characters are very entertaining and appealing, even in their, uh, supreme, uh, psychopathic, uh, unlikability. Yeah. Um, but you watch it cause like there's catchy songs with montages of people getting killed, uh, yeah, I, in interesting ways. Uh, I, I mean, use good, I use only like of late, I only watch Goodfellas as a teaching tool in school. Like I, I like, I usually show that montage from, yeah. uh, when he's stirring the pasta, all, when he's making right. the sauce for his uh, brother coming to town all the way to, uh, getting her off on the flight and getting arrested yeah. in the front yeah. yard. I show that in film school just as a way of like look at the way that he juggles multiple perspectives in 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 this one montage. Like this is right. a whole short film in this one section because we're you know we have different like why is the camera over here? Well, shouldn't we be with Henry at this point? Why is the camera over here? And then like oh this is a re- reveal later we reveal that he's being watched and he isn't paranoid. It is true and you know just that's the only reason why I watch it because at this point. The moves are so obvious that it's yeah. easy to use as a film school technique because then you don't have to be subtle about the uh, perform, you know, the stuff. And it's a, uh, it is, it's super entertaining, it's super fun. Yeah. But it is in no way like uh, you know, a film uh, characters to kind of like be like, oh yes, yeah. this is who I want to be when I grow up. Well, but also and, like, I mean, do we do we really need a almost three hour movie? to get the idea that people who are in the mafia are shitty. No, you know, no, like ultimately what's appealing about, uh, Mikey and Nikki, and I'm sorry to everybody 
literally everybody listening to this who I'm sure all love Goodfellas. So I'm not trying to trash that movie. It's very fun to watch. Um, but like this movie is uh, obviously it's about gangsters. It like we've talked about somewhat deconstructs the gangster movie, but ultimately these characters uh, speak to a deeper universal truth about masculinity and about family and friendship. Um, that's that's the core of this movie, and that's what is mm-hmm. I think so effective uh, in the way that she tells it. And it's interesting because. I mean, the the use of violence in this film is something that was uh, not present in the previous two movies that we watched. Um, you know, Walter Matthau wants to kill people. Uh, he actually does kill people in the real version of the movie. Um, but there's no, you know, he poisons people. I don't, there's, there's no... Yeah, the gentleman's murder. Yeah, if anything, I mean, Walter Matthau and Charles Grodin uh, are sort of, they're sort of emasculated in the films, uh, in certain ways, you know, uh, there, there's definitely like a, a way to approach Walt, Walter Matthau's character as gay. Um, but he certainly, um, seems like he's kind of asexual at the very least. Um, and Charles Grodin's characters is constantly trying to become a uber male that, uh, you know, the dominant male that, uh, goes out and gets what he wants. Um, like in the in the commercials um and yeah. and here but here like these guys are almost like the achieved ideal of masculinity that those two other characters were striving for but like nobody or at least that charles groden was but like it, it's it's that dirty and nasty and um i mean that first scene uh, another scene that really feels like a comedy is the cream scene. Like, uh, you know, oh, yeah. but it, because it's so ridiculous that he's fighting with him because he like refuses to pay, let him pay for cream. Um, and, uh, and yet like when he flips over that counter and punches that dude, like that is terrifying. It's really mm-hmm. surprising. I mean, it's even, even knowing that this movie is about gangsters, it's like, Oh, we're, it's going to be this kind of movie now. Oh, yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing humorous about it. Like yeah. it's not a, not a big, uh, over the top, uh, slapsticky kind of like knock that out of his hand, grab the cream, right. throw some money on the counter. It's, uh, and cause it sets it up to feel that way with, uh, John Cassavetes throwing something out the window to try to get his attention yeah, and he's yeah. looking for him. You feel like it's the setup that it's going to be a humorous film, but that punch that Peter Falk gives is, it just says, Nope, this is going to be a lot, a lot darker than we expected to be. And it's so lame. Like he's fighting yeah. with him over cream and, and like you compare that to something like Joe Pesci stabbing a guy in the eye with a pen in casino. Like there, it's not, uh, it's not like a pleasant portrayal of uh, somebody exhibiting psychopathic behavior. This yeah. is like um, a a small, angry boy lashing out um, over not getting his what milk. he wants. Yeah. yeah, and it's funny. Like, and we talked uh, we talked a bunch of times about uh, the fact that you know you can feel Elaine May's writing in this movie that she has orchestrated all this stuff and the words are out there because they're so layered and nuanced and it it helps the performances strive and become better um you know even from the get-go of all their character names they're all childy childish names nikki mikey uh, ned Beatty's character's name is kenny 
uh, Annie is the uh, girl he go has on the side. Nellie is uh, Cassavetti's wife. You know, you have all these like really childish names. Like they're not like adult names. No yeah. one has an adult name except for the two uh, gangsters, Sid Fine and Dave Resnick. You know, Resnick and Fine, which sounds like uh, an attorney's. Uh, well, and of, of course, Mikey and Nikki uh, recalls Mike Nichols, uh, her yeah. former partner. Which I, I don't know if that was intentional. It seems like a remarkable coincidence if it wasn't. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I guess I guess the only other question about the masculinity aspect that I'd ask you is it, they do come off, you know, um, as sympathetic uh, throughout the film. I mean, certainly at certain times more so than others. Um, and we talked about how there's definitely some sort of um, understanding of Walter Matthau's character and Charles Grodin's character. Do you feel like this, those things are intentional on the part of Elaine May, or do you think it's just the fact that she is so good at writing characters and getting performances out of her actors that are believable that we just inherently recognize the humanity in them? I, I, I think it, it stems from Elaine May. I think her, her writing style um, is about mining the foibles of human characteristics because each one of those movies um it's it's you know if you just took the story or the plot in and of itself they are fairly simple like because her prime concern is characterization and yeah. that's part of that's part of all of her comedy stylings they're creating these fantastic characters who then interact in these situations and you can see uh, how they behave because the characters are so well developed and then in the films as well and I think that's what that's what would attract someone like Cassavetes and Falk to this film is because the writing yeah. is so deep um, in terms of building these characters that then they can take it to the next level without having to work on building the characters too much. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's, that's why we're able to get these crazy performances because there was no, well, I don't feel he would say this. I don't think he would do that. Um, you can feel like, Oh great. So I can, I can really imbue this character with all this stuff because it's all there on the page. I don't have to work so hard to make these characters come to life, which is the opposite of the in improvisational style. Where right. You're spending all your time thinking about how these characters would, what they would say. You don't have to, so you can just think about how they would be. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it uh, so uh, compelling and strong. Yeah, he had um, very kind words to say about her while making this movie. He was interviewed for uh, something else, I think maybe Woman Under the Influence, um, and said she she was one of the uh, the only directors that he really felt like could elicit the kind of performances that he liked um, out of his um, out of her um, her characters or her actors um, yeah I mean I think that um, I, I think that she doesn't purposefully want to sort of mess with the audience by making them sympathetic I don't think that's her intention I think like you said I think it's just purely the fact that she's writing human characters that feel real and they don't um you know they're not serving a point they're intended yeah. to be um richer than that 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 I think is I think that's really why 
she's able to pull that off so well. Um, yeah, they're, they're like most humans. They're, there's moments of complete disgust because they go to their most base yeah. and depraved right. levels. And then there's moments of grace where you're just like, that's beautiful. That's something that is uh, worth saving. That's that's the thing aliens will see and say, let's save this humanity because they are not that bad. <laughs> you know, that's the theme of every uh, Gods Among Us type film, you know? Yeah. So is there anything else that you wanted to cover? No, I think, uh, I definitely think everyone should go check this out. I think give it a, give it a couple of tries. And I, I'm, I am so happy we chose to, uh, do Elaine May. This is, uh, this is like I, we said, I said at the very first episode, um, this is a filmography for me. I was completely unfamiliar with and, I'm so happy that I get to discover these films and talk about them in this way because uh, I think uh, I've been so happy with this uh, with this uh, program so far. Like it's it's been great, and so yeah. In terms of this movie, just give it a, a go into it with an open mind and really uh, let it kind of wash over you and watch it a few times, and you can really start seeing like uh, beyond the. Uh, beyond the technical things, which, uh, you know, I got hung up on on the first time. So, so I think we're both going to put this at the bottom of our, our ranking, which is not an insult to the film, but, um, that would, would you agree with that? Yeah. Or? Yeah. I would say, uh, you know, right now as it stands, uh, this is at the bottom new leaf edges this out because that movie has so many great, just dry, wry, subtle humor in it that it elevates it past the messiness of, uh, Mikey and Nikki, um, and I think that's because you know I just find the the humor <laughs> just so funny. Yeah. But you know, a couple more views, a couple more watches, and I could see this kind of getting above New Leaf, but it isn't. It isn't anywhere near Heartbreak Kid. Uh, neither of them are yeah. at this point. Yeah. All right. Well, next time uh, we are going to complete this season. Very a lot sooner than I wish that we were. Yep. And yeah. this is this is probably um, one of the most notorious movies in Hollywood history. Um, Waterworld. Oh wait, no what? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's funny. Like Waterworld just totally dropped off the map, didn't it? I mean, the truth about Waterworld is like it's really not that bad. It's just like a bad movie, you know. Well, it's just it's 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 because they spent it, yeah. it, 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 it was the hype going into it, right. how much money they spent, how crazy everything was, yeah. but it's, Well, and again, like that's what's going on here. Um, exactly. So, yeah, so it's going to be Ishtar, uh, which which when we were kids, um Ishtar was kind of like a one-word joke for a bad movie. <laughs> yep. I think, you know, they actually called Waterworld Fish Star. Yes, that's right. As as a reference of how bad, you know, Waterworld was in comparison, so it became uh, synonymous with bad movies. Yeah. So I'm excited to check this out. Me too. Uh, I watched this movie when I was probably, you know, 14 or 15, basically like thinking like, well, I'll watch it as a joke to see how bad it is. And I was like, uh, I can't even, I can't even, what, what the hell? I can't even laugh at how bad this movie is. It's actually not that, <laughs> it's actually kind of good. So we'll see if I still agree with that. Uh, Cause it's been 20 years since I, I watched it. So no. uh, I'm looking forward go. to my first viewing and we're going to watch the director's cut. 
yes, the director's cut is what is available on the Blu-ray. Um, I think there were three or four cuts of this movie, which you know we'll also obviously get into, um, and we'll we'll probably also talk about the uh, the Mike Nichols uh, American Masters that uh, Elaine May um, yeah. directed uh, in 1999, which is uh, under an hour, so it, it's not uh, it doesn't doesn't reach our our requirements for a for a full episode, but we will uh, we will discuss it and and wrap up uh, the tragically short. Uh, directing career of Elaine May. And with that, we're complete for another week. <laughs>